Thank you, Cliff. My great-grandmother, Anna Laura Swinney, later to be Hoffman when she married my great-grandfather, Isaac Hoffman, was born November 27, 1867, in Illinois, a little over two years after Abraham Lincoln was shot and killed. When I was in elementary school, my mother began working full-time, and so I spent a lot of time at my grandmother Hampton's house, and also in the summer I would spend time there since my mother worked. I was an only child. My great-grandmother Hoffman lived in the basement of my grandparent, my, the grand, my grandmother Hampton's home. She was cold-blooded. She had a little stove, a little ventless stove that she had going 365 days a year. You know, they do make some warm underwear for those of you who... That wasn't in my sermon. I don't know where that came from. Anyway... Uh, my great-grandmother uh, Hoffman was a strong woman. My great-grandfather had died at, a, at an early age. My great-grandmother raised three girls on the plains of southwestern Kansas, outside of Ulysses, Kansas. She was, uh, I read recently on the school board and a number of other things that would be unusual for a woman in the, in the early 1900s. But she was a strong woman. And I love great-grandma Hoffman. I would go down and spend time with her. I was an only child, and my grandmother would be busy doing things, so she loved me and took time to relate to me. Well, it was the 4th of July, that season of the year, and I had firecrackers like every other kid my age, and there was that fire going 365 days a year in the basement. And I love to tease Grandma Hoffman. And I said, Grandma Hoffman, I'm going to light this firecracker. Oh, Lane, don't do that. You'll get into trouble. Well, I didn't intend to. Bang, it went off. And I heard the steps from upstairs. My, my grandmother Hampton, plop, 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 little short woman, little short stout woman, she came down, she looked at me, and she said, Lane Earl Smith, what on earth are you doing? Well, the older I've got, I think that's a pretty good question that we ask ourselves. What on earth are we doing? What on earth are you doing? That's precisely the question that faced Jesus in the Mark text for this morning. What, Jesus, on earth are you going to do? What's your ministry going to look like? How are you going to be the faithful son of God? Or are you going to be the faithful son of God? You see, there had to be the possibility that Jesus would buy into what he's tempted with here, or else it's not a real temptation, is it? This season, as we begin the march, the trudge towards Easter, a season called Lent, always begins with Jesus in the wilderness, this first Sunday. 
Being tempted by the devil, his hair still wet from baptism. As Barbara Brown Taylor has said, no sooner did he come out of the water than the dove that had lit on him turned into a guide bird, leading him away from the river and into the desert with the voice of God still ringing in his ears, this is my son, the beloved, with him I'm well pleased. Before Jesus starts his earthly ministry, there are some things to be settled, some tests to be passed. Temptation is a fork in the road, isn't it? The leading of God in one direction, the leading of the tempter in the other. And we've got to choose. The only choice we have to choose, we can't not choose. We go one way or the other. It's inevitable. You remember the Robert Frost line about forks in the roads of life. I took the one less traveled and that's made all the difference. Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction. That fork in the road is the easy one. And there are many who take it. For the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life. And there are few who find it. What that says is it's not easy being faithful. It's not easy. It's not a smooth road. It's difficult. It's a challenge. We can't do it on our own. That's why we gather for worship. That's why we have a God that's greater than we are. Because we can't do it alone. There is always the temptation that pulls us away from the less than noble. There is always a choice. But it is a choice, a choice to rise, a choice to fall. What will Jesus do here? Will he compromise? Will he defect? Will he capitulate? Will he give in? Will Jesus, the one sent to proclaim good news to the poor, choose power, choose shortcuts, yield to temptation? We stand on the sideline wanting to yell, no, Jesus, don't do that. Don't fall for that trick. Because we know more likely than not we would. We would sign the deal, sell our souls after all. Think what good we could do with the power. That money, that influence. Jesus learns here if he doesn't already know. That being chosen and blessed by God does not exempt him from struggle. Sometimes Jesus' blessing calls you to do some difficult things. God's blessing on your life means you have a responsibility to face challenges, to walk a difficult road. A blessing doesn't mean everything is okay. A blessing means that you and I have been tasked by God for specific things ministries for leadership in this church this church surprise surprise needs more people willing to step up and be leaders to use their gifts and it's not always easy because you've got some folks that are just negative Nellies and it makes it hard sometimes doesn't it sometimes I'm the negative Nelly sometimes perhaps you are 
But you know, temptations always look good. By definition, they do, don't they? They always look good. There's just enough truth in them, just enough good to make them attractive. If they weren't attractive, they wouldn't be a temptation, would they? And these temptations come at the end of the 40 days. When Jesus is hungry and tired and more vulnerable, these temptations, according to the scripture, come from the devil. Oh, you say you struggle? You struggle with the idea of the devil? I tend to agree with Malcolm Muggeridge. See if this doesn't ring true in your life. He said, personally, I have found the devil easier to believe in than God. For one thing, alas, I've had more to do with him. End of quote. Sound familiar? These temptations, just like the ones we face, serve to clarify our commitments. To clarify who we are and what kind of life we are going to live as disciples of Jesus. Empowered by the scripture Clinging to the Spirit, Jesus is able to overcome them, and that's our only hope to do the same. I wrote a, a, a little devotional for, uh, for your Lenten series, and I talked, I, I heard Fred Craddock, and I, I looked for it, couldn't find exactly what he said. But he grew up in a very, very conservative environment in, in the Eastern Tennessee. But he memorized scripture. And he said throughout his life, that reservoir of scripture enabled him to face lots and lots of things because he had that as something to lean on. Something of substance. And thus Jesus as well. You see, the temptation is both personal and social. The temptation to turn the stones into bread is not about survival. Jesus is fasting for religious purposes here. Rather, Satan is advocating a if-it-feels-good-do-it philosophy here. Jesus is tempted to substitute the good for the best. That was one of my dad's favorites saying, Son, we get so busy doing the good we miss the best. Just take a few shortcuts. Feed the hungry. It's a worthwhile project, you see? It's a good deal. It's a good thing. Think of all the followers you'll get. Compromise a little. Don't we have to compromise? This appeals to our desire for immediate and positive ends in the easiest possible way. The hungry hope that the stones will be turned into bread. That's what makes it a real temptation. It's real. But Jesus, filled with the Spirit, turns to Scripture and fends off the temptation. But then it becomes political, doesn't it? Will Jesus submit to the ruler of this world in order to achieve good for the people of the world? Tempted to secure legitimate ends through illegitimate means. the need is real liberation from oppression but Jesus sees it for what it is it's not real liberation it's fake liberation it's the temptation of idolatry and disobedience it's too high a price to pay so once again clinging to scripture 
and the power of the Spirit, Jesus is able to refuse. You see a pattern here? Scripture, Spirit, able to overcome. The final temptation turns religious, doesn't it? Will Jesus win Jerusalem by coercing faith? How do you put those two together, right? A coerced faith is not faith, is it? Will he avoid death by display of supernatural power? Why must pain be a part of Jesus' life and mission? We don't like that. We don't like Lent. We want to run. We don't. People stay home in droves for the Good Friday service, but they show up in droves on Easter Sunday. We would much rather come to a resurrection than to a death party. And we're afraid that if some of this happens for Jesus, this pain and suffering, if we follow Jesus, do you suppose that Jesus might expect some of that from us? Heaven forbid. Heaven. Isn't there an easier way, Jesus? Why not eliminate the need for trust? See, faith depends on our willingness to trust. But Jesus would have lost it all. He would have denied his humanity. The whole point of God becoming human would have been lost if he'd fallen for this one. In order to entice, Satan quotes scripture. Oh, that wily dude. Which ought to help us understand that just because someone can quote scripture doesn't mean they're up to any good. Okay? Because even the devil knows scripture. It's possible to quote scripture and be on the devil's side. Jesus rejects this as an act of foolish endangerment. That violates the very invitation to trust God's care. Jesus knows that dependence on God doesn't mean foolish endangerment. But rather a quiet faith that assumes God's care for all creation. Jesus rejects this theology of glory that avoids pain. He ascribes to a theology of service that calls for sacrifice, no shortcuts, even, even suffering. Guess what? Jesus has decided what on earth he's doing and how he's going to do it. See, this is at the very beginning, the very beginning. Which road will you take? The one less traveled with Jesus? Jesus did it through the power of the Holy Spirit and The sustenance from scripture, it sounds simple, but it's not all that easy. Perhaps you've heard of Hugh Thompson. He knows something about the road less traveled. 
On March the 16th, 1968, he was a young helicopter pilot flying patrol over the village of Milai. He saw a nightmare taking place below him. U.S. Army troops in Charlie Company, under the constant pressure of danger and the madness of war, had lost control of discipline, reason, and humanity. They had begun slaughtering unarmed civilians, most of them women, children, and elderly men. 504 people already had been killed. Thompson set his helicopter down between the troops and the remaining villagers. He did it at great risk to himself. He got out of the helicopter and confronted the officer in charge, Lieutenant William Calley. Then he airlifted the few remaining villagers still alive out of Milai and radioed report, radioed a report of the scene. And that led to a halt in the action, saving perhaps thousands of lives. That was 1968. Fast forward to 2002. When Emory University awarded him an honorary doctorate, Thompson said in response to the question that was on everyone's mind there that day, how in the world could you have the moral courage and strength to do what you did that day? I'd like to thank my mother and father for trying to instill in me the difference between right and wrong. We were country people. We didn't have a lot. I was born and raised in Stone Mountain, Georgia. Like I said, we didn't have a lot, but we did have the golden rule. My parents taught me early, do unto others, as you would have them do unto you. That's why I did what I did that day. And the text reads, Then Jesus, filled with the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and the glory of the Lord was round about him. Jesus is taking the road less traveled, the the dangerous route, the suffering route, the painful one. He can do it because like Hugh Thompson, he listened to his father. And how did he do it? Through the power of the Spirit of God, And clinging to scripture. Oh God. Help us to do the same. For Spring Creek Baptist Church.
needs willing leaders like Jesus and Hugh Thompson who have a clear understanding of who they are and who God is calling them to be because you know around here and around a lot of churches there are too few people doing too much of the work. You have gifts. So let me ask you the question that my grandmother asked me that day. What on earth are you doing? Amen.